On September 10th, 2001, all of us who were alive at that time went to bed not realizing that we would wake up to a different world. The next day, the whole world would change. But for some, the world would change more than it did for others. That next day, as planes began to run into buildings, our first responders began to run into burning, collapsing buildings that other people were running out of. In other places, military men and women began to make themselves ready to find and eliminate those who would seek to do us future harm. As we approached the anniversary of that life-altering day in history, we wanted to do an episode that paid tribute to all of those who put their life on the line for us each day. Sitting in a high school classroom in Northern California was a star athlete named Jordan Stevenson. Through a series of events, Jordan would be one of those who would be called upon to go to Afghanistan and defend all of our freedom. While serving in Afghanistan, he was shot in the head. It left him in a coma for months, and when he woke up, he woke up to a body that was paralyzed on the right side. His story of resilience and recovery and the way he is using his platform to help his fellow service members and anyone else who's going through a hard time is incredible. Thank you, Jordan, for sitting down with us, and thank you to all of those who choose to put their life on the line each day to preserve our freedoms and safety. We hope that you enjoy this interview with Jordan Stevenson. Welcome to the Sportlight Podcast for parents, coaches, and athletes. The Sportlight refers to the time in an athlete's life when they have increased ability to affect the culture around them and the increased opportunity to learn life's lessons through sports. This podcast aims to help parents and coaches capitalize on their athletes' precious time in the Sportlight. The Sportlight Podcast is brought to you by Especially for Athletes program. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm here with Jordan. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk. Yeah. So Jordan recently has been talking to some of our athletes in this area, my daughter being one of them, Jordan, and came home and just so inspired by, by you and your story. And so she actually told me, Dad, you got to get you got to get this guy who came and talked to us on your podcast. You know, she, she'll want to listen to it. But Jordan, I think it would be awesome just to begin today by sharing your story with people. A great story of resilience. And, and, uh, and it started out, though, being an athlete, right? Tell us a right. little bit about your athletic journey. So I suppose being an athlete podcast, I'll start from when I was an athlete. <laughs> Um, I played sports my whole childhood growing up. I played competitive soccer from like I think second grade to my freshman year of high school and then once I got to high school I had to choose between soccer and football and sorry guys, football won. <laughs> I was, that, that that's was, okay here. That's we, what, the, that's what the, cool, the cool kids play football so I was like <laughs> I want to be one of those guys. So I, played, yeah. so I chose to play football. Uh, I was a captain all four years I played, I, I played football. And I, on top of that, I wrestled and I ran track and field. My freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year as a track athlete, I went to I went to state for California. So what was I, your event? Uh, I went to state every year in our in our relay team. Okay. But individually, I was a three hundred hurdler. Okay. Cool. 
I'm proud to say I still hold a few records at my old high school. Awesome. What high school was it? Uh, Elk Grove High School in California. Awesome. I'm a California guy too, so I grew up yeah, right. in Southern California. Yeah, you, you I'm, were I'm a no-gal. Okay, yeah. So, so right by of, Sacramento. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And then that took you, you got a scholarship, So right? I, took, I got a scholarship with track and field to Sacramento State University where I was, it, when I talk about it, I was so used to being the big man on campus as, as a high school athlete. Like, I was the fastest guy in the school. I was the, you know, the captain of the football team. And I got to college and I was just bottom of the totem pole, <laughs> lowly freshman. And everyone I was competing against was that guy when they were in high school. So yeah. I'm competing against all these other guys who are just as fast and good as me. And that was a, that was terrifying. I call yeah. man. Now I really have to train. I gotta get. I gotta now. I gotta focus. And yeah, yeah. I remember that feeling even right, yeah. in baseball too. I think all of us who have played a college sport, you're used to being kind of the the big man on campus. Though you'd never call yourself that, I guess. But it, but then all of a sudden you show up and you realize, like you said, oh, everyone here was that guy. Maybe <laughs> maybe that was my flaw is that I would have called myself the big yeah. guy on campus. So yeah. maybe I I, I led wrongly with that as from high school to college was like I'm this you know like you don't know who I am I'm, I went to state all four years I was in high school what'd you do yeah. I had I had a wrong I had an over confident and I, I was I guess I was, I was too cocky mm -hmm. rather than leading with my confidence I was cocky and I feel like that was detrimental to my experience as a collegiate athlete and then I made the brilliant decision to join a fraternity when I was in college, Tau Kappa Epsilon. Sorry boys, I gotta throw you under the bus. <laughs> but then my priorities went from academics and track and field to my fraternity and track and field. And athletic, my academics unfortunately fell way lower than they should have and I lost my scholarship. I gave it a run in junior college, but that wasn't gonna work out for me either. I wasn't always the biggest academic that I should have been or could have been and mm -hmm. so then it was all right what's next and college isn't going to work but I still had that athlete athletic mindset if I wanted to do something hard and at that point in time you know joining special forces was the hardest thing I could do otherwise so that's what I did I mm -hmm. went after Navy right oh, yeah Navy yeah. so I went to I went to SEAL training first which everyone told me I was crazy and I wouldn't make it through SEAL training and that was, again, that, that cocky young man that should have been confident and not cocky. And I didn't make it through SEAL training. I, I ended up getting pneumonia in my first, my first SEAL class. Then my second SEAL class, and I made it all the way up to Hell Week that first class, and I got pneumonia. My second class, I made it all the way up to Hell Week, the first day of Hell Week, and I got what's called SIPE, swarm-induced pulmonary edema, which is where I get too much salt water and sand in my lungs because you're wet and sandy all the time so then I so then they rolled me out of hell week again all the way to the very beginning for the third time I make it to hell week for the third time and I completely tear my ACL hmm. and unfortunately they were right I didn't make it through SEAL training but I never quit so that's my claim <laughs> to fame I didn't that's a, quit that's that's great and I know from family experience and everything like that how hard that is and the accomplishment it is even to make it to Hell Week. Oh, it is without a doubt as hard as it looks on television. Yeah, yeah. Bar none. 
And so then you chose... But I had built such a reputation for myself as not quitting and working through the pneumonia, the SIPE, and all those things that my instructors who are active duty SEALs recommended I go recommended to me that I go into explosive ordnance disposal because after I finished that training it would give me time to heal my knee and if I made it through that training then I would still be operating with them under the umbrella of special forces so I was still gonna have got they wanted to keep me around so I made it through EOD school and three years later so my four-year contract yeah. ran up pretty quickly and then I, I became an EOD tech for EOD Mobile Unit 1, stationed in San Diego. And then your your company um, was deployed, and you were serving in Afghanistan. Take us to that moment that really changed your life. What, I guess what I'll, you'd like to share with us about that? I'll correct you ahead of time that it, we didn't call it a company. Oh. The, the, each branch has their own wording and how okay. they talk about things. So for me, it was my unit. So it was my EOD mobile unit that I was I was with EOD mobile unit one, and within EOD mobile unit one, I was part of another subset of a team, and we they attached us to uh, the 75th Ranger Battalion, Bravo Company, and I deployed to Sharana, Afghanistan, December 2011. Okay. I landed boots on the ground, I think December 8th, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So typically, a lot of deployments are six months to a year for other people, but since we're special operations and we're operating at such a high rate of, of, of movement, my deployment was only supposed to be four months. Okay. And on, so we, as soon as we hit the ground, on the eighth night, we were operating that night. We went, I went out every single night for the first eight days of that deployment. And it was on that eighth night that I was wounded. Okay. And what would it look like as you went out and you are, you're going out, you leave, you purposely go at night? Everything we did was at night. We own the night. Okay. And we, so, have, we have all the night vision, cool guy gear, and yeah. we own that night. Okay. And you're out, you're looking for roadside bombs. Is that what you're looking I for? I am. Well, with the Ranger team, what we're doing is kicking doors in and we're going after, we're going after bad guys. Okay. So it's my job as one of the point man, if there's a booby trap or an ID. To get rid of it and so that my team can keep moving forward. Got it. Got it. And so it was on a night where you're going out, you're looking for bad guys, you're you're right, disabling just, those. Just another night traps. the same as the, the previous eight nights that yeah. I had gone out and so all of their buildings are surrounded by walls. So my job as the bomb guy, there were vehicles inside of this compound, inside the walls of this home, and they wanted me to get eyes on inside of the compound where the vehicles were, so that if one car was leaning too far to one side or the other, I know something's in there, it could be explosives. Mm -hmm. So that my guys don't walk into a booby trap, I could warn them ahead of time through my radio, hey guys, you know, the car on, you know, B side, you know, looks weighted down, I'm, you know, be careful. And then when we do go in, I would have gone straight to that vehicle and, and cleared it. But I'm up on top of that wall, and the last thing I remember radioing to my team, if you'll see me do this a lot, and I'm going to call it muscle memory, that that's where my radio button was. Yeah. So I remember radioing to my team that I didn't suspect any VBIDs, which are vehicle-borne IDs, that I don't remember, I don't see anything that made me suspect that anything was going to detonate or blow up on my guys. 
so that we were clear to move in and that's the last thing I remember. It was at that point in time that the guy we were looking for came out with his weapon and just started shooting bullets at us and, and specifically me up on the roof and that bullet went through the front of my helmet through my head and out through the back of my helmet so all the way through my skull and then you don't remember I don't remember any of that any of that but what I would and this is all second this part of the story is all secondhand even to me right because you though, don't remember the moment even now. though I was doing it I don't remember any of it but supposedly I came back on target with my weapon and put 30 rounds back down range hmm. and subdued the, the contact so that nobody else on my team was was shot at or, or wounded that night and I, I'll take that bullet nine times or ten times out of ten if it protects any of the boys behind me yeah we have a saying I've shared it with you the GK Chesterton saying that when we talk about competing without contempt with our athletes that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him but because he loves what Just is behind him Oh yeah, ultimately when when you're fighting war, like I don't want to I, I don't want to shoot people. I don't want to get shot at. Mm -hmm. But the it becomes about, you know, the team that's with me and the boys that I've trained with and sweated with and bled with that I'm going to do everything I can in my power to protect them. And because I feel like that and what we've gone through, I know they'll do the same thing for me. Mm -hmm. That no matter what happens to me, they're going to do everything they can to save and protect me. And I am a testament of that. That's awesome. And it definitely has some application to being a great teammate. I, I think the ultimate teammates are in our military, right? Like the way you all rely on each other. What have you learned about being a great teammate from these experiences? So when you talk about war, war, is, war should be terrifying, right? Like mm -hmm. someone's trying to kill me. And in return, I'm trying to kill them. So it's it's... There's no kind way to, to talk about war other than we're trying to kill each other. Yeah. But I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't scared to go fight in war and to face death because I knew and trusted the guys that I was with more than I trusted, than, I, than I'll ever trust anybody else again because I knew that they were going to be there for me. Hmm. So that part of being a part of that kind of team where there's that level of trust and faith in one another is is something that most guy, people won't understand unless you've been a part of it. The closest thing you'll get, I would say, is, is being on an athletic sports team where that guy in front of you, you know, speaking football terms, that guy in front of you sacrifices himself to make that block so you can keep going. You know, now I trust that guy every time I run this play that he's going to make that block and I'm going to be able to, I'm not going to get hit. Mm-hmm. That's the closest I, th I think I can compare it with it as far as athletics goes. But Yeah, which is really cool that you said because you have sweat with them, bled with them, you know, all those Pride, things. yeah, you name you, it. You've seen these guys go through the most difficult circumstances and they, they stuck and, with it. And they've seen, they saw me through the most difficult time. Yeah. And what I, I, what I talk, talk to a lot of people about as far as that, that team goes is like, even though I was wounded and I was no longer operating and on the battlefield with them, that team mindset that I was still part of the team never, never ended. They would, they came to visit me when I was in the hospital and they brought me things and gifts, you know, like, hey, we brought this for you, or they made me things from Afghanistan and sent them back to me from, from Afghanistan. So 
even though I wasn't operating anymore, I was still I was still part of the team, and they still made me feel like I was part of the team. Yeah, that's cool. Which I you know I'm forever grateful for that, because that was a lot of motivation that I needed to keep going and to keep fighting. If they were still fighting over there, then I they deserved me to still keep fighting for them here. Yeah. That I was going to get better. And yeah, I heard in one video that you said it was touching to me, um, profound. But you said you went to Afghanistan. And you were ready to die, but you weren't ready to come home injured. Yeah. Uh, so tell us what the well, injury we, was. Like we when you go to war, you understand that there's there's a possibility of getting hurt or or killed. So you you develop this callus in your hand of like, okay, I know that this could happen. I'm gonna do everything I can to mitigate those those chances, but it's still always gonna be there. Yeah. Yeah, and so when you were shot, you uh, you're brought back and brought to the hospital, and then tell us what the doctor told oh, so you it there. Was, it was two months. I spent two months, or almost two months, in a coma from when I got shot, December sixteenth, two thousand eleven, and then I woke up, you know, later that hmm. next year. Wow. And I, I had doubt, so I've been in some scary situations in my life. I've jumped out of a plane, you know, over 300 and something times. I've, I've been 300 feet underwater. I've accidentally swam with sharks. <laughs> so I've gotten to do a lot of scary things. I've been in helicopters yeah. and I've done things that should be scary. And the scariest thing that I've ever had happen to me is when I woke up in the hospital. Nothing's more scary than that moment. Hmm. When I woke up in a dark room by myself with tubes out of my neck, out of my arms, and I remember going to sit up, and I couldn't sit up. I couldn't move my arm. Because what had happened was the bullet went through the left side of my head. The left side of your brain controls the right side of your body. So as a result of the bullet going through my brain, it completely paralyzed my right arm and my right leg. And I'm sure once you know the nurses noticed my, my heart rate meter spiking, then they came in and... And I started talking to me, and my, they notified my family who was staying at the Fisher House, which is a charity that, that's on every VA hospital for families to stay at. Mm -hmm. and so they notified them, hey, Jordan woke up, we need you guys to come and, and, and talk to him and help comfort him and you know let him know that he's okay. And so my family came in and you know let me know that you know you were wounded, and, you know you got hurt in, during the war and over fighting, and I'm still so out of it, I'm still trying to grasp of what's going on. And, I have tubes out of my neck, and I'm not supposed to be able... They told my family I'd never walk, and I'd never speak again, if I woke up. And... I will never forget, I know what you're getting at, <laughs> I will never forget having my neurologist come into my, into my hospital room while I'm laying in this hospital bed, you know, essentially paralyzed, and him telling me that you know, you're probably never going to walk in and this is, this might be what it's like for the rest of your life and just how devastating that was for in that moment for me, but still having the personality and my family is still not knowing like if I was going to be vegetable or what kind of personality I was going to have, if I'd still be me at all anymore, told that doctor after he told me that I'd never walk in and he can get the F out of my room. With some more cho you know, choice words at that time. <laughs> Thanks for cleaning it up. That were me. valid for that moment. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Right now, not as valid. So I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you the censored version. And, and tell him to leave. And at that point, my family was like, all right, he's, 
he's the same Jordan. So even though it was kind of like the doctors, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe he just said what he said to me. My family was like a relief for them. Like, all right, same Jordan. He's yeah, we, he's back. But he still has his personality. Still, still the same fighter and yeah. stubborn mentality that he ever was. And so you you have this realization though, because you can't feel your right arm, you can't feel the right side of your body. No, as as angry as I was at him, the reality was I was completely paralyzed. My right arm was and is completely paralyzed. Hmm. I couldn't walk. I couldn't get up. That was those were those were real realities. Things. That was reality. It was that I couldn't do that. But I was determined to prove him wrong and to prove them wrong. That all the things they said I wasn't going to be able to do, that I'd be able to do again. I was a Division One collegiate decathlete at Sacramento State University. Made it through Special Forces training, deployed with Special Forces with the Army Rangers. And now I'm paralyzed? Like, who, who are you talking to? So maybe then that cocky kid I said I wish I wasn't earlier came in, came, handy. Came in handy as a benefit <laughs> to me. Like, all right, yeah. now let me show you what I can do. And... And it, then it was time to really get to work. And yeah. So tell me about the work. pedal to the metal. Now, I, I have heard that you told them you wanted them, hey, was it your decision to amputate? Oh, eventually, yes. So what happened was that team that I was telling you about that was so essential to my recovery because then I had people that would come to motivate me and encourage me to get up and, and you know, go to physical therapy to where something as little as standing up on my own became a monumental achievement for me. So a guy on my team would come and he would hold me up. He would put his arms around me, get me on my two feet standing next to my bed and he would hold me so that I could get weight on my feet again and I could try and stand up again. And, and I was able to stand it. So once, eventually through his help and... And this is one of those team members. This is one of those team members that I was still. So they're like coming they never, home. They never and left like, me. Yeah, my yeah. boys were my boys were my team was still my team. That's cool, man. Which is really cool. And then you know that team grew into my nursing staff and doctors and my family all became my team and they're still my team. And I, I just never, never quit. Yeah. And so, so then eventually, tell me how so you. So I was able to stand and and on my own, and then little by little, I was able to to walk again so going from never being able you're never going to walk into four months later learning how to walk completely independent of a wheelchair and independent of anybody holding me up i learned how or learned how to walk in i want to say taught myself how to walk in but i hack i don't want to just <laughs> i don't want to not give the give the credit the credit to yeah. the nurses and and the staff that helped me get to that point so i learned how to walk after four months the fun story is the first time i was able to walk again i i got the nickname superman while i was in the hospital because i i stopped a bullet i guess i didn't essentially stop <laughs> it because it went through me yeah but i survived getting you shot with the bullet yeah. so i everyone started calling me superman so the hospital was having a, a dinner for all the patients and I walked into that end of the dinner playing the Superman soundtrack off my phone as I walked in. <laughs> That's awesome. So then that, you know, that cocky, confident, you know, attitude yeah. about myself got to shine a little bit and, and I, and so I learned how to walk in. The unfortunate part was I was able to walk, but I still didn't have any stability in my ankle. 
So if I was on uneven surface or anything like that, I would roll or break my ankle. Mm -hmm. So I would rehab, learn how to walk, break my ankle, let my ankle heal, and then I'd break my ankle again. So it's just like this cycle of of letting my bone heal, rehabbing, walking, breaking it again. It was just like this ugly, painful cycle. Yeah. And you'd think since it's paralyzed, it wouldn't feel it, but man, it was painful. Yeah. So then, so I got shot December 11, 16, 2011. January 6th, 2016, I elected to get my right leg amputated below the knee so that I could walk a little better. There were vets, there were friends of mine that were double amputees without any feet that got around better than me on both of my feet. And I was like, man, this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So I said, just, okay, can we cut this off so I can get a prosthetic leg? The braces I wear anyways are basically just like a prosthetic anyways. I don't have any mobility regardless in my ankle. So it's like, just give me a prosthetic. These guys are getting around better than me. How can I get faster and, and do more things with my kids with, 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 with the state I'm in now? So I... I got them, I convinced them to let me cut my leg off and start re when I learned how to rehab walking now, I don't have to worry about my ankle breaking. Yeah. That's, that awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. And so you have a goal, um, before we get into resiliency and how sports helped you build that <laughs> sure. stuff. I love the goal that you shared about what you're gonna do sometime here in the in the near future. So I almost set myself up for it, and I got another story you're talking about. In that, I was part of a documentary called uh, Project 22, mm -hmm. and it highlighted that 22 veterans commit suicide every day. Yeah. So they were highlighting veterans that have been through traumatic things and what we're doing to to recover and stay positive. And so I was at a sailing clinic in San Francisco for uh, for this for this filming, and I was talking about how I taught myself to ride a bike again and. And I was documented saying, you know, it would be really cool if I took a bottle of sand from the West Coast and brought it to the doctor that told me I'd never walk in. On, on, my, on my bicycle on the East Coast, 2,771 miles. Uh -huh. And if I brought him that so that he would understand how, how valuable it is not to take away hope from, you know, luckily for me, I have the mentality that I do that I was like, I'm going to show you what I can do. I could have let his diagnosis of never being able to walk in and let that be, be it for me. I could have quit right there. But I did, that's fortunately for me, I'm not that guy. So I came up with the idea that I'm going to bring him this bottle of sand so that he remembers me when he's trying, when he's talking to a patient about what he, he won't, he can or can't do and what he will or won't be able to do. So I'm like, I'm going to bring him this bottle of sand. I'm going to ride my bike. So I'm documented in this movie talking about how I'm going to do this thing. And then somebody saw that video and reached out to me online to find out if I did it or not. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> no, I have to do it. Awesome. So from there on, I, I kicked into high gear and now, now I'm going to do it. And so Memorial Day of 2023, I'm starting the bike ride You're from starting. Balboa Hospital in San Diego all the way to Bethesda, Maryland. That's awesome. That's awesome. We can't wait to follow you. Yeah, are, you gonna, are you going to do something like on social I, media and stuff? I'll, probably, I'll, I'll be posting definitely once, once it comes around on social media. I'm currently posting online now about like the training I'm doing uh -huh. for it. But I guess so far people said, oh, you should really promote this. In a small way, I want it to be like a motivational thing for guys to look at and be like, wow, maybe I could do that. Mm-hmm. 
but in a small sense, it's just for, it's a passion project for me to just to prove that I, I'm still capable of doing these, you know, big things that I want to do and, and setting this example for just my kids. Yeah. Like, look what dad did. That's awesome. Now, I know that veterans and, and suicide is something even in our conversation before right. this that's come up a couple of times. You had a, a buddy that... Yeah, this this past November. So part of what I did on with the Ranger team, there's there's two Navy EOD techs like I am mm-hmm. on that team. So I'm a two-man team on this larger Ranger team. And my counterpart to that deployment shot himself this past November. And that was really when I was like, man, I really got to do something. I got to use this opportunity that I have to use my voice and create a platform so that other veterans like me or even people just struggling through difficult situations can see me and, and see, all right, he's doing this. Maybe I can do it. And just to give them some encouragement that, you know, as grim and bleak as it looks, you know, if you haven't tried everything, you can't say that you can't yeah. because there's this option you haven't tried. Yeah, and I love your your comment about don't take hope away from people. And uh, that little bottle of sand is just a reminder of the power of hope. And, right. And you said uh, you were kind of born with that. I, I could almost picture, Jordan, the kind of athlete that you were. Like <laughs> if someone said, you can't win that, you can't do that, you can't. Did that used to motivate? Like where did you build that resiliency muscle? It's almost... We talk to our athletes a lot about how sports really helps you to build resiliency. It's almost like building a muscle and you never know exactly when you're going to have to drop on the strength that you've built. But do you see connections with who you are and the determination you have now and the time you spent as an athlete growing up? And right. Again, that, that cocky coffin kid wants to tell you that I've always been this hard and this stuff, but... Looking back, the first year I tried out for football as a young kid, I quit. Mm-hmm. And that's when I joined competitive soccer because my brother played soccer. So and I was like, I want to go do that instead. I don't want to play football anymore. And then, of course, a couple years later, I try out for football again and then love it and stick with it. But I, so I didn't have that inherent toughness that I brag about having. Mm-hmm. I had to learn it. And whether that was my dad. Tell me, you know, you made a commitment to the team. You, I know it's hard, but you made a commitment to them, so now you, you you have to live up to that commitment. That forced me to learn the toughness. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, I can handle this, and this is this is harder than I want it to be, but I'm, I'm tough enough to still do it. And even though it was hard, I could still do it. Right. And so I, I think that was a learned thing. Like you're saying, over the years, I learned that I can handle more than I thought I could. And Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the most valuable things about sports. One of our four key principles, and especially for athletes, is resilience. And to be resilient, to build resilience. That Sometimes we think, oh man, this is crushing because this kid just lost, or this kid just got cut, or this kid just got taken out of the lineup. But taking a step back and looking at life and what life does to us sometimes, it's, you know, it is, those might be the most important experiences that we have in sports or those times where we do quit or where we do want to and we have a dad say no you're not quitting like you or, made a commitment yeah a dad or a coach yeah you know, no you can you can handle this and you're gonna you're gonna commit to this you're gonna we're counting on you so you need to be there 
So maybe that's what I learned from that. Like I knew that in, when I was a youth, like Mario, my team's counting on me. Mm -hmm. I need to be there for them. And I carried that. And that's because that's a big part of being in the military is that team, they're counting on you. You know, like I, that guy is counting on me to save his life if he's wounded. Mm -hmm. That's a far stretch from, you know, this, you know, this football team as a, as a sixth, seventh grader, you know, then that team was counting on me to the level of the military, but it's it's building blocks. Yeah, it wasn't as big, it wasn't as detrimental as a youth football player, mm -hmm. but it grew to be, you know, a major block in my line of work that I, I chose to do. Yeah. But it, it's the same mentality that my team's counting on me back then to my team counting on me now. It's the same mentality. Yeah. You know, this is airing right before September 11th. And so as we look at that, you know, that that event in American history where we kind of, we all went to bed on September 10th, right. 2001, and the world was one way. And then in, in one morning, the whole world could change for first responders. September 11th was way different than they thought, you know, and for all of you who were willing to sign up and say, okay, I, I need to keep my homeland safe. Is there any message that was, you would share with people about about that and about the sacrifices families and people make to, to help us? I was a freshman in high school in my English class. I remember it very, very vividly with my friends. You know, everything shut down. The whole school went quiet. Every every classroom had it on the TV and what was happening, what was going on. And so I, I remember it very, very well. And it's, it's odd to me seeing these kids that now I feel like the old man now I'm like well you guys don't know what it was like but but I do remember what it was like and how, how much it changed my world and ultimately changed my you know what what the rest of my life was going to look like and how much that that day would affect the rest of my life and my line of work that I would fall into and what I was going to do um one of the reasons I want to do the bike ride across the country is that I've I'm just going to pick a random, random place like, let's say Omaha, Nebraska. For me being a California kid and now in Utah, that seems like a pretty far away, you know, flyover country place. But, you know, Joe, whoever that lives there, he doesn't know, you know, he doesn't know me from Adam. I'm just some random guy. But I fought for him. I fought for him. I fought for, you know, Joe, whoever in North Carolina, I fought for him. Like, all, I, I, I want to ride my bike across so I could see the country I fought for because all these people that don't know who I am, but if you're an American citizen, I fought for you. Like, I was willing to sacrifice my life for you. And every single person that has raised their hand and taken that oath to the Constitution has been willing to make that sacrifice as well for you, for your neighbor, for your parents. For your grandparents, for your future grandkids and kids, we signed up to sacrifice our lives for you. Hmm. So to that lowly veteran you see on the side of the road, at one point that man was that man or woman was willing to give his life for you. And I bet you if they had the opportunity they'd still do it. Well, first of all, thank you for being willing to do that. I've seen the price that families and military personnel pay 
you've paid a great price for our freedoms and and so I'm honored to be here I just like 100% just so honored to be with someone who paid such a great price for my freedom I'm one of those Joe somebodies yeah. in Spanish for yeah, right. I fought for you and my the, my teammates they, they're fighting they fought and are fighting for you and, that's and awesome. we'll continue to fight for you and for your neighbors and everyone in your family and what we do here in our in the United States. One of the things I want to I want to make sure that I have a message that I share is when I tell my story, I, I tell people, and I think this goes back to the seek to bless, not to impress. Mm -hmm. Is when I tell my story, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I love my life. I love what I got to do. I love the service I was able to do. I'm grateful for the opportunity that my country gave me to fight for her and and for the the teammates and friends that I've made along the way. And while yes, getting shot is handedly you know, without a doubt one of the worst things that could or may ever happen to me. Knock on wood. <laughs> but I could also argue in the same breath that it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. So while it's the worst thing, it's also one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I choose not to focus on how awful it was for me, but all of the blessings and things that have come as a result of it. Now I'm able to use this platform that I have to reach out to veterans and other vets and people who are struggling because life is hard. So I'm able to reach out to those people who are struggling and, and doing things and, you know, and, and put them under my wing and, you know, like, all right, let's, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can figure out and what we can do. So I'm grateful for the platform that I've that I've gotten from it. So don't feel sorry for me, and I love it, and I'm grateful for it, and I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Well, I love that. We just we spoke with someone, Mason Sawyer, recently, who um, he he actually does a podcast. It's called 1090. Lou Holtz, former Notre Dame coach, you know, famous famous know coach. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he said life is ten percent of what happens to you and ninety percent of how you respond, and the ninety percent response to bring joy and hope and and all of the things you've talked about to other people, and man, the way you're responding, it is super, it is super inspiring to those of us who get to watch, and and it's you know, man, I. I've never had something like this happen in my life, but we all face things, like you said. Right, well, I hope that nobody goes through the, the pain and struggle that I have, but if you can learn from my experience without having to go from it and through it, then that's what I'm here to talk about and, and share with everybody. Awesome, awesome. So one of the last things maybe, Jordan, that I would love to, to just talk about is the purpose one of the main purposes of especially for athletes is to really encourage our athletes to keep their eyes up looking for people who might who might need them and then to do the work when you see someone in need to do the work to actually lift that person i i saw that principle displayed many times in your in your story what you would like to do what drove you with your with your partner taking his his life and when you said okay I need to do something I need to help you eyes up you saw what needed to be done and now you're you're doing this great work to to help other people but 
Do you have any thoughts for our, our athletes in regard to the importance of when you see something that needs to be done, doing the work to help and lift someone? I'm, I'm fortunate for my the opportunity that I have as, and the platform that I've been able to build with what I've been through. As athletes, we get a special spotlight on us all the time. And I think it's important to make sure we look at the person, the people that are behind the spotlight that are watching it on us. Um, I think people always ask, you know, what do you say to, what What should people say to people like me? You know, think, think free service doesn't seem like enough. But what people don't understand is that that's a big deal for me. Like even just that, that acknowledgement of the sacrifice that me and my friends have made is a big deal to us. So the thank you for your service is enough. So when you're walking through the hallways or your, your team or your school and you see somebody and you have your eyes up and you see somebody that might be struggling, how just like a, what's up or how's it going or just a smile, how big of a difference that that, think of how big of a difference that that thing can make, that that can make for somebody. Just Because when, when you see somebody smile, you can't help but want to smile yourself. We all know that as, as human beings, we want to be around, you know, happy, you know, good people. So when you can be that happy, good person for somebody that's having a bad day, that smile that you give them could change their day. It could change their life. So be that, keep your head up and, and doing the work doesn't need to be a hard thing. It could be a smile. It can be a high. It could be a shake in his hand or her hand. It doesn't have to... The term work doesn't have to be a, a scary thing. It doesn't have to be a hard work. It can just be work. And if you enjoy the work, then it's then it's easy work. So keeping your eyes up and doing the work is easy work. It doesn't have to be eyes up, do the hard work. Eyes up, do the easy work. Say hello. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And and uh, for those who would like to get in contact with, with Jordan, we'll put his your Instagram and some other contact information in our show notes. And, and I, I know from speaking with you, you, you do have a desire to share your story and to share, I guess the, the journey so that others might, might be able to find hope and to have that hope that, that you have within you. Yeah. Don't, don't share my struggle. Learn from my struggle. Awesome. Well, Jordan, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. And thank you, everyone, for I joining the Sportlight Podcast. Yeah, yeah. And we appreciate your time and your service. We really genuinely appreciate it. Sorry, I forgot about the camera, guys. So you see me scratching on my face. This is my new toy. So I'm constantly <laughs> running and playing with it now. Looks good, man. Thank you. Looks good. <laughs> so, well, thank you, everyone, for joining the Sportlight Podcast. Keep your eyes up. Do the work. This has been the Sportlight Podcast from Especially for Athletes, sponsored by Coca-Cola. You can learn more about Especially for Athletes by visiting the website at especiallyforathletes.org. You can also learn more about the book, The Sportlight, by Shad Martin and Dustin Smith at especiallyforathletes.org slash book.